And let's ask God's help as we come to his word together. Let's pray. God of heaven, we pray now that you would talk to us through your word, that you would speak into our lives and into our hearts and into our situations. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray, bring your word to life and bring glory to the name of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if uh, you're a Christian here today, you know that the message of the Bible is one that we have found to bring glorious hope and joy, one that gives us uh, help through the darkest of times, one that brings us comfort in times of trial, but also one that gives us this fresh forgiveness, this wonderful freedom, glorious joy, one that gives us hope and a purpose in life, gives clarity in times of confusion, and it is a great message of hope that we've got. And we want many more people to enjoy it with us. We want our friends and our family to see what Jesus has done for us. We want uh, people in our street, we want our colleagues, we want other people to know, look what Jesus has done for me. Look what he can do for you. It doesn't mean our lives are easy and there's no problems and we don't struggle in different ways. It doesn't mean that we don't always see the greatness of the message, but we know that it is good and we want other people to believe. But the problem is, so often we get nervous and scared, don't we? Because we want to tell people we think, oh, nobody will be interested, or nobody will want to know, even though we know how good the message is. And I want you for a moment to think with me, in your mind, of somebody who you think would be the least interested. Somebody in your life who you'd love to tell them about Jesus, but you're just a bit too nervous to do it. Or you think, if I do, there's no chance. Maybe you've tried to tell them in the past and they've shut you down and they said, I don't care, I don't want to know. Uh, maybe you've never got around to it and, and built up the courage to tell them. Bring that person to mind and think about how you feel when you want to tell them about Jesus. It's scary, isn't it? Daunting. We can often feel despondent and often feel, well, there's no hope or no chance. Maybe this morning, just for a moment, just think in your mind of the valley where we live. Think of where you live. As we look around and we think there's a few of us here, but how many more are out there that we'd love to hear, for them to hear the message of Jesus? We can feel overwhelmed. We can feel hopeless, powerless. Well, often when we th see things from our perspective, that's how it can feel. Too much, too big, too scary. But this morning, uh, I want us to see from this passage in Jonah that we need to shift our view. Instead of seeing it from our level and our perspective, we need to start seeing it from God's perspective. And when we see it from there, it changes everything. Now, maybe you're not a Christian here today and you think, well, what difference does that make for me? Well, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I, will, I just don't want to believe. I'm just not interested. I don't want to know. You'll, you know. I'll never trust. I'll never believe. Well, when we look at what God does in Nineveh this morning, I pray that even as you leave here today, you think, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to trust in him. So look at this situation that Jonah finds himself in. He is now just being um, spewed out of a big fish's mouth and he is on the, um, on the coast, and there he is ready, and he's been told for the second time in verse 2, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. 
Here he is. Let's look at it for a moment from Jonah's perspective. He is now um, probably you know, smelling quite a bit. I'm sure the insides of the fish at the best of times can't smell very nice. He's smelling like that. He's been in there for three days. Some people say that maybe because of the um, acid that would be in the stomach of a fish, he might be kind of bleached. So he would look quite, you know, quite a strange sight. And here he is um, speaking or going into the city where, is, where the enemies are. These are people, the Assyrians, who didn't like um, Jonah uh, and his people. Here's one man going on his own into this great city. Chapter 4 tells us there's 120,000 people there. That doesn't sound like much to us for a city, does it? You know, a great city. For us, we're talking millions in our day. But back then, 120,000 people were, was that kind of size. It was massive. It was a huge city. And we're told in verse 3, it's three days' journey in breadth. Three days it would take you to look around at all the greatness of the city of Nineveh. Three days. So it is a great city. It's big. Lots of people. Not only that, but we know from the history books that it would have been very impressive. Um, you, you know, you've heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Well, they think it was probably the Hanging Gardens of Nineveh. That's where they were. So it would have been very impressive. One of the wonders of the world could be seen there. Uh, there was a huge palace that the king had. It was an imposing place. Great big roads. Huge walls surrounding the city. Just imposing, big scary you can imagine the, the kind of equivalent today is big skyscrapers and just really uh, massive buildings not only is it a big city not only is it impressive to look at but it would have been a violent place as well the assyrians were evil people they did really horrible things to their enemies they were known for their arrogance they were known for their brutality and how they treated their enemies uh, the kings in one of the chronicles of their kings he wrote this down I caused great slaughter, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned, I took their warriors prisoner and I impaled them on stakes before their cities. Many I burned in a fire, many I took alive, from some I cut off their hands to the wrist, from others I cut off their noses, ears, fingers. I won't read the rest but he goes on to say about skin, skinning uh, rebellious people that rebelled against him and he tells you what he went and did with their skin. So we're talking that kind of brutality, just not scared to hurt or uh, maim or do deal with people horribly. So they were a violent people. Again, we're looking at it from Jonah's perspective here. It's big, it's impressive, it's violent. But also, spiritually, it was a pagan place. They would have worshipped loads of God and have no interest in hearing about the God of the Israelites. It was an impressive, daunting, hard, brutal city. And there is this smish, smish, fish-smelling prophet on his own going to speak to this place. I mean, the, the odds aren't looking good, are they? The odds aren't looking good at all. From a human perspective, here's Jonah, a prophet who didn't want to be there, a prophet who tried to get away, is now faced with this impossible task. So from a human perspective, there's not much hope. Now again, let's remember how we feel in our circumstances. Do you feel weak? Do you feel outnumbered? Do you feel like it's too big uh, a job for you to be able to share the message with those around us? Well, Jonah travels a day's journey in, we're told in verse 4. Maybe he's trying to put it off. Maybe he's just building up the courage. We don't know. But then he shares the message that God has said, verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He says that message. And then 
what happens? Well, something amazing, isn't it? The people of Nineveh believed God. And from the top of the, of the city, that is the king, down to the bottom, that's the animals, they were all kind of repenting. They all turned to God. They put on the sackcloth and ashes to show that they were sad and upset about what they'd done, and they were turning to him. Now, before we look in detail about what happens here, can you see how we can have the wrong perspective? From Jonah's perspective, it looked absolutely hopeless. But God knew otherwise. God knew different. He could see something that Jonah couldn't. And we can be negative, we can give up before we've even begun, and feel fearful. But here is God, and God cares about people who are lost and don't know him. See, think about why all this is happening. This wasn't Jonah's plan. I know, I'm going to go to Nineveh and tell, no. God wanted Nineveh to go. God spoke to him and came back to him to make sure he got there. He even kind of made this fish to get there, swallow him, put him out in the right place. God had more concern for these people, more concern for his glory than Jonah did. And he makes sure Jonah gets there to hear his message because he knew they were ready. God calls us, like he called Jonah, to share his message. The last things Jesus said to his disciples, remember, was, go therefore to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that's a huge task, isn't it? Human perspective, dear me. But then what does he say just before that? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. That's the context. From God's perspective, things are different. Jesus is the ruler. He's in control. He's the one we can trust. So today, I want us to see things from God's perspective. And when we do that, it transforms how we view everything. So four things that are going to help us um, that it will change. First thing is this. When we see things from God's perspective, it will make us urgent. It will make us urgent. So this is Jonah's second chance. He's told him to go, and he does. And Jonah's message comes out in verse 4, as I read earlier, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the Hebrew, that's five words. That's all he said. We don't know if that's literally all he said, or if it was kind of summed up of what he said, but that is what he said. Five words we've got written down here. And it's a shocking message, that, isn't it? Not maybe the way you'd suggest Jonah would go about doing it if you were going into a place where you know people um, were, would be against what you're saying. Say, oh, Jonah, are you going to dumb it down a bit? He said, no, 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 in, in, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. But the reality is he was going about it and he was being honest with them. This is the message God had given him. He was passing it on. Judgment is coming for the way you've been living, for the way you've been treating people, for the way you've uh, ignored God, He's going to deal with it. He can't ignore it anymore. And he passes on God's message. And it's a message of judgment. A message that is unpleasant for other people to hear. Let's just pause on that for a moment and think, well, we can think often, can't we, that it's the part about God's word we don't want to share. Here is a God who says, I'm a God who cares about justice. I'm a God who wants to put things right, which means I'm a God of judgment. And we can often think it's something that we want to kind of ignore. But you see here, in, the, in one sense, it's bad news that Jonah's given. But in another sense, it's good news. Why is it good news? Because judgment hasn't come yet. It's a warning. It's saying, look, there's, there's, there's a chance. Even though Jonah doesn't say that, there is a chance. Judgment isn't now, and so God is graciously warning them. It is good news. So when we have to tell people, look, 
There's a God who cares about how you live and what you do and what you do with him. We're being honest and loving and open with them because God cares. And in one sense, it's good news because there's a warning. Now, just before we go on, and I think on a day like today, just to pause on this thought of judgment, can we see what the opposite, sometimes we want to not mention God's judgment, but the opposite to that is horrendous, isn't it? A God who doesn't care about justice. If we say, oh, let's take God's judgment out of it, we've got a God who doesn't care. A God who looks at the heartbreak that we remember today on Remembrance Sunday and says, oh yeah, I don't care. The brutalities that have happened over the centuries. Oh yeah, I don't care what that God says, if there's no justice and no judgment. You think of Hitler, who is um, responsible for the killing of millions and millions of people, and then he killed himself. Is that it? Has he got away with it? Well, the Bible says no, because we've got a God of judgment, a God who is seen, and a God who will make uh, people pay, who puts things right. You think of um, the unsolved murders, You think of the abuse that goes on behind closed doors that nobody knows about and nobody will ever know about in this world. And maybe you've been through things and nobody else knows, but God does. And the good news of God's judgment is that he cares. He will put things right. That person who maybe you faced that horrendous thing that they did to you, God has seen it and he will put it right. See, no judgment is bad news. And judgment, when we see it from God's perspective, is actually good news. People will be held to account. And when we bring that together with what Jonah's going through here, we need to be open and honest to people about what the Bible says. And it will give us an urgency to say, look, you need to be right with God. We can't say to people, 40 days and Jesus is coming back, or 40 days you've got until you're going to meet with God. We don't know, do we? But we are told that Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back, we're told, like a thief in the night. And as you know, with thieves, they don't send letters to warn you that they're coming and the date and time. They come when we don't know and when we don't expect. And so the Bible says Jesus is coming like that. We don't know when he's coming, so we need to be ready. But even if we didn't have that verse, isn't the reality of life. We don't know when when this life's going to come to an end for us. We just don't know when it'll be our time. And we need to be ready. This could be, let's be honest, it could be the last Sunday you're sitting here. We don't know. And so Jesus, in his kindness this morning, is saying, turn to me now. Don't put it off. What are you waiting for? Do it now. Today is the day of salvation. And when we see it from that perspective, it gives us urgency to respond now, if we haven't already, but as well that urgency to want to pray for people to come to know Jesus. Um, I remember reading, uh, or no, hearing, I was hearing an interview with um, uh, Penn Gillette. I've shared this before about, uh, he was an, he's a um, Penn and Teller, that's what they call this duo, a magician duo. Uh, they, they were on TV a bit more than they are now, I think. Uh, but they were a famous magician duo, and he is very famous, outspoken atheist, uh, Penn Gillette. But somebody, one of his fans came up to him and gave him a New Testament. And he wrote on the front, he said, uh, I wanted you to have this. And this is how he responded. So he gave him this Bible. He knew he was an atheist, but he gave him this Bible. And this is how this atheist responded. I believe he knew I was an atheist. He wasn't defensive. He was kind, nice, sane. He looked me in the eyes. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone not to share? How much do you have to hate someone to believe in everlasting life and believe it's possible, but not tell them that? 
This guy cared enough about me to share and give me a Bible. Isn't that amazing? Coming from an atheist, he cared enough. You see, to be consistent with what we believe, we need to pray for boldness to be able to share the message. We can't say like Jonah, 40 days, but we can say, look, please, would you consider Jesus? We can't force anyone to believe, but we can present the news of what we have got. So if you're not a Christian this morning, let me encourage you again. Are you right with God? If this was your last Sunday to be sitting here, are you ready to meet him? And the thing that doesn't mean, right, I need to have a really good week now, and I need to really do loads of good stuff, because if I'm going to meet God, I better be ready. No, the Bible says we'll never be ready if we rely on what we do. What we need to do is rely on the right person. And Jesus has done that for us. He lived a life we could never live, so that we could be, uh, so with it, and he died the death we deserve to die, so that we could be forgiven and right with God. Put your trust in him today. And maybe you think, I don't understand what that means. If you want to be right with God, trust in Jesus. Trust in him. Say, Lord, I don't know what that means, but I need you. Call out to him today, and he won't turn anyone away, the Bible says. And if you are a Christian, help us to, let, can we see what this is telling us? There's an urgency. Our friends and our family need to hear. Are we praying like there's an urgency? Are we living like there is? Or are we slipped into just being comfortable? Does it shape our diary? Does it shape our... Um, who we spend time with does it shape our conversations an urgency to the gospel jesus is coming back people will be meeting with god and we have the great news of hope both for now and forever from god's perspective when we see it from there it gives us an urgency but secondly this if we see things from instead of our perspective and our level from god's perspective it'll make us expectant so jonah was going to this um scary big city that would have hated him and wanted, didn't want anything to do with God. But the reaction we see is nothing like we expected, is it? We don't expect that. And yet, um, listen to it again in verses 5 to 8, what happens? The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now, on a human level, we'd have thought no way, but God had a plan for Jonah to go. He went and they responded. Now, it's really interesting to look historically at the timing that Jonah went. Because it looks like at this time, um, uh, the king of Assyria was Ashadan III. And his reign, and in his reign, the power of Assyria, they are the superpower of the day, apparently it was waning a bit. It was, they weren't as strong as they had been. They'd been under attack, uh, and they'd faced military pressures. Not only that, but it was at this kind of time and in this history, there was a solar eclipse. And the Assyrians believed that was like a tragic omen. If that happened, you know, our time is, is, is up. Uh, and they thought, well, they were worried that their king was going to be killed because of that. They were worried that somebody worthless was going to take his place. And really, there was, um, they were really unsettled. There'd been famine on and off for seven years in Assyria. And also, the uh, historians think there could have been an earthquake. So this usually strong, arrogant kind of um, unflappable Assyrians 
who thought they've got the world at their feet. Suddenly, there's cracks appearing in their strength and power. And then, at the right time, these people might have been more receptive then than ever before. Jonah comes along, and he shares the message that God sent. Now, isn't it interesting to think, well, Jonah spoke at that time, and they were ready. But again, we don't need to just go to this passage in Jonah to see that. We see that kind of teaching in the New Testament, and Jesus speaking it. In Luke 10, he says, The harvest fields is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is saying, how are we to view people and how they respond to Jesus? It's a harvest, he says. Go and, go and reap. Now, a farmer doesn't kind of go out and hope there are some crops, does he? He doesn't say, right, I'm, I'm going to go and reap today. I'm going to go and pull up all my crops and get them ready and, and hope, fingers crossed, that there's something there. No, he's been preparing uh, the crops. He's been, you know, I, again, I, I'm sorry, I don't know the, how a farmer goes about it, but I'm, I'm sure they've been doing things like this. They've been preparing the field. They've been sowing the seed. They've been making sure it's watered or fed and making that sure that has been grown at the right time until it's time for harvest and they say, right, now it's time, go. And when Jesus says, go, I'm the Lord of the harvest, I'm ruling, go and find. Go and find the fruit. So do you see what that means? Putting together with what we see in Jonah and the timing there historically, but as well just the biblical teaching on it, we can be really expectant and optimistic about how people are going to respond to hearing about Jesus, because it's his harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest, and we don't know what people are going through and the questions that people have um, just behind the scenes. We don't know what people are thinking in the moment where, you know, it's just them and their thoughts. Maybe they're wondering, is there a God? Is there any purpose to life? You know, is there any hope for me with the failures that I've done? My life seems a mess and I'm chaotic and I don't know where to turn. And then at just the right time, we might come and say, oh, have you heard about the hope that Jesus brings to failures like me? I remember reading the testimony of an atheist. And he said, you know, there was things going on in his life that nobody else knew about. Things like he looked at a view, a beautiful view. And he just thought, there is no way that could be an accident. He didn't have an answer for it. He just thought, there's no way that could be an accident. Um, he watched a film. And that film just made him feel empty. I don't know what film it was, but it just left him feeling hopeless. And then one of his friends became a Christian. And at just the right time, that friend then shared the message with him. And he was ready to hear and he responded and trusted and grew on to be a, um, a man greatly used by God. I think, well, who knows? We don't know what people are going through. We don't know what questions people have. And they might from the outside look like the hardest, most unexpected person to come and trust in Jesus. But we don't know. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the harvest. I've prepared the, the, the harvest, so go and reap. Go and reap. Hearts are ready. So let's not look at my stig as, well, nobody wants to know, nobody cares. We need to get out and tell people because they might be just ready to hear what God has to say to them. And maybe this morning, that's you. You've come here and you've got these questions, you've got these struggles, and you are ready. You're thinking, you know, whatever I thought in the past, I'm ready to believe now. Well, again, let me encourage you, don't put it off. Don't push him away, but turn to him and trust in him today. 
See, as we see things from our perspective, there's no hope. But from God's perspective, suddenly things seem very different. And let's pray that we would have this boldness, this, this excitement, this expectancy that God is going to work in power. So it makes us urgent, it makes us expectant. It also, thirdly, makes us dependent. What an amazing turnaround in the city from top to bottom. Uh, the, the, uh, the people hear the message and they instantly go and get sackcloth and ashes. Again, that's the way of just showing that they are sad for what they've done and they are sorry. And then the king hears about it and he says, I issue a decree, put on sackcloth and ashes. The people are like, we've already done it. <laughs> we've been there, you know, we're already in our sackcloth. But he puts that decree out and they're all there, ready to turn. And, um, and here he is, this, this city has turned from top to bottom, from the king to the animals. Everybody is told, you need to repent. But remember who God used to accomplish this. Let's not forget the last few weeks that we've looked at. Here is Jonah. Remember Jonah? God's mouthpiece. But actually, he is the one who ran. He's a failure of a prophet. And God uses him. And that's what we see throughout the Bible, isn't it? God using failures. This is how one person wrote it. Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Abraham risked uh, his wife's life. Jonah ran from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossiper. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody. Moses stuttered. All of them, you know, you can keep going. Everybody had failures and weaknesses, and yet God uses them. So today, are you feeling like a failure? Are you feeling like there's no way God could use me? Oh, it's okay seeing it from God's perspective for other people, but, but not me not with my life, not with my mess, not with my struggles. Here's a God who uses failures for his glory, uses us in our weakness, and here's a God who can use you and he can use me for God's glory. And doesn't that make us think, I can't do this on my own, I'm, I'm gonna depend on him, I'm gonna lean on him. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking it's down to us, I've gotta do this. But actually it's God's work and he wants to use us depending on him, leaning on him, and trusting in him. Remember who God used to do this. But as well, look at his message. It's not the best of sermons, is it, in chapter four, uh, verse four, sorry. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Five words, as I said in Hebrew. He hasn't crafted it very well. I don't think he's got any sermon illustrations in there. Uh, the next chapter shows us his motivations are all wrong and he didn't want them to believe anyway, which we'll get on to next time. There's no mention that if you turn to God, he'll relent and stop. He doesn't say you can repent and turn. You know, they have to work that out themselves. Oh, maybe we will. Maybe we can. But God uses this failure of a prophet with words that aren't very clear or uh, powerful, and he uses that for his glory. Maybe today you feel, I can't share the message because I get so tongue-tied, or I get nervous, or I get sweaty palms, or I get all clammy. Oh, no, not me. And we seem maybe to get nowhere when we try. But look, God can use us, however strong or weak we think we are, however good we are with words or how much we fumble over our words. God can use us for his glory. Um, do you remember the, how Spurgeon, the 19th century um, preacher from London, uh, became a Christian? God used Spurgeon massively in his life, um, speaking and preaching to thousands. Uh, this is how he became a Christian, okay? One day he was on his way to um, to church and he couldn't go to his normal church so he because of a snowstorm he turned down a side street 
and there was about, he went into a church where there was about a dozen to 15 people. And um, the usual minister couldn't get there because of the snowstorm. So uh, this man stood up who he said was a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort. And he stood up in the pulpit to preach. And this is how Spurgeon put it, not a very nice thing to say, but he said, this man was really stupid. That's how he says. And he said, he was obligated to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. And this was his text. This was the version the Bible he used. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, verse 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look, look in, don't take a de great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or finger, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. Man needn't be worth a thousand years to look. Anyone can look, even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Hey, he said in his broad Essex, I won't do it. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, to Spurgeon at the back. Young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifted up his hands, he shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. It was a, as Spurgeon says, a terrible sermon, he thinks. But then he said, I saw at once my way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with the thought, look. What a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. And there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen at that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust and you shall be saved. Not the best of sermons and not the greatest of preachers. And yet God used that man that day who stood up and tried his best to, to, to save this man called Spurgeon, who God used in a mighty way. We don't know in our weakness how God can use our fumbling words. Let's point people to Jesus. He's the one who saves, not us. It's his work. So we need to be urgent, expectant, dependent. And the last thing is confident. That might sound a bit contradictory if the last one is we depend on him because it's his work. But we can be confident. Why? Well, because look at verse 5. It tells us this. Look at verse 5. It says, the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. Does it say that? It doesn't say that. It says, the people of Nineveh believed God. This was God's message, not Jonah's. It wasn't his idea, not his plan. But it's easy to slip into the mindset that we have to convince people about Jesus. Now, there's a right place for answering people's questions and arguments. There's a good place for that. But ultimately, what we're doing is we are heralds for the king. We are saying, I'm just passing on a message from God. The message that the Bible says is, is this. We're not just a small people, group of people suggesting people consider something. They're saying, look, this is the news from God. This is what he says. This is God's word. It doesn't mean we share in an arrogant way, but we can be bold. We say, look, this is it. This is what God says. And God is the creator of everyone. And if God is the creator of everyone, has a message for them, then we can be confident that there is something deep inside each person that knows deep down 
they're hearing the truth. John Stott said this, his conscience is our ally. In all evangelism, I find it a constant encouragement to say to myself that the other person's conscience is on my side. We can be confident, confident in, in the message, but as well, lastly, now to finish, confident in God's mercy. Do you see the, the king's reaction in verse 8 is, let everyone turn from his evil way, and verse 9 says, who knows, God may relent. Jonah didn't tell them that God was merciful and gracious and kind. That's why in verse four, in chapter 4, we'll find out next week, he, he didn't say because he didn't want them to believe, really. But we've got a God who longs to show mercy, and these people in their fumbling way kind of said, maybe if we turn, he'll show mercy. And God delights to show mercy, we're told in Micah 7. He longs to show it. So that should make us confident as we share the gospel that God is ready to save and wanting to save. And if we have any doubt at all of that, we look to the cross. Because there we see God gave absolutely everything. He gave the best he could to rescue uh, a rebellious humanity. Jesus came and he gave everything for us. In 2 Peter, it tells that God doesn't wish any that should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God longs to show mercy, so let's um, hold it out uh, to those around us. If today you're not a Christian and you're thinking, there's no way God would save me, maybe you can see, I, I need to believe this, but with what I've done, what I've been up to, there's no chance. But God is saying to you today, there's nothing uh, that I can't forgive, nothing that I can't wash clean, Nothing that can make me turn you away. So turn to him today. We've got a great message, and so often we can be put off by looking at things from our perspective. So today, let's pray that God will help us to see from his perspective to make us urgent, expectant, dependent, and confident, because it's his work and his word. Let's pray before we sing our last hymn together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the wonderful gospel message we have and we pray, please, that you'd help us to see it from your perspective, to trust, Lord, uh, that you are at work. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you say you're the Lord of the harvest. And so we pray, would you help us to see fruit over these coming uh, weeks and months and years, that many people would come to trust in you, not for the sake of Pena, Lord, or us, but for your glory's sake and for your mercy's sake. Again, we pray, Lord, have mercy save and rescue and use weak people like us like you used Jonah and we pray this in Jesus name amen